This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. From the widely publicized silent film star Fatty Arbuckle's trial in 1921, to O.J., Weinstein, Cosby, to Britney Spears' conservatorship battle, and now the ongoing Johnny Depp-Amber Heard defamation trial, celebrities in court seem like a constant source of news. I'm very pleased to have Professor Andrea McDonnell with us this week to dive into the subject of Hollywood's legal battles, reoccurring themes she's seen in her studies, how they test our perception of celebrity, and much more. Professor McDonnell is a media scholar examining gossip, celebrity, gender, and politics. She's written the book Celebrity, A History of Fame. Professor McDonnell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. You are also starting a new study, a new project on celebrity trials. Um, Let's start off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I started noticing what I began to see as a bit of a trend in celebrity trials, um, specifically with male celebrities and especially with male celebrities who have been accused of sexual assault or sexual violence. Um, I was following the case of Terry Balea, better known as Hulk Hogan, against Gawker Media a few years back. And he made what I think an average person would find to be a sort of preposterous claim during the case about his privacy, which revolved around the idea that the character of Hulk Hogan was a distinct entity from himself, the person, Terry Balea, and was therefore himself, Terry, entitled to a different standard of privacy. And it's a striking argument in that I think it reveals quite a bit about how we consider celebrity, particularly in the American context, that we have this interest in the quote-unquote real or authentic person. And what does that mean? Um, It raises all sorts of questions about performance in the public eye. What is sincere? When, in what circumstances does sincerity matter? Um, Does authenticity matter? And particularly fascinating from a legal perspective, because there are real and impactful effects and consequences. It's not just a tabloid piece in Us Weekly, right? It's, you know, people's lives and financial futures are on the line. So it was interesting to me, but I didn't think too much of it after that until I started following the allegations against Marilyn Manson, um, whose real name is Brian Warner. And I noticed that during this last year or so, uh, he's been subject to multiple lawsuits and attempted um, litigation against him for a variety of of reasons, but especially and perhaps most prominently for his uh, alleged sexual violence against a number of different women um, with whom he had relationships. And And there's a documentary, right? Yes. So Evan Rachel Wood, uh, she's perhaps the most prominent uh, star who's come out and spoken about her experience with him. 
and she recently released this documentary, Phoenix Rising, um, which is actually quite relevant because in the lead up to the release of that documentary, um, Brian Warner sued her in an attempt to suppress the film. Um, so he's used litigation on numerous occasions to try to suppress or otherwise control the narrative around the cases. But I noticed that his surrogates, his PR team, and um, his legal team made comments that have also echoed the idea that, well, Marilyn Manson was a character that he was playing. This is his persona. So we should not confuse um, his persona with his quote unquote real self, which would never, would, which although his public persona is very violent and extreme, the, the quote-unquote real Brian Warner was not those things. It was essentially an act. And it made me think about this argument. Now, this is an argument that's being made outside of the courtroom currently, but even to make it in the public sphere to say, you know, my character is distinct from my quote-unquote true self. And there's a, there's a new show on Netflix about Jimmy Savile in the UK and, and it starts off with a quite similar analysis right. that on the surface, right? Um, he was he was he was a weird and eccentric guy, but you know, she was that was a character. Um, but what are they actually saying that people are confusing them with their sort of screen persona, and that's why they're getting accused of these things? Mm -hmm. They're each one using that analysis for different ends. So in the whole Colgan case, Terry Balea was using that argument in order to claim that he had a specific right to privacy that public persons like celebrities as himself um, are not necessarily entitled to. Mm -hmm. And in the Marilyn Manson case, I think he's using it with a slightly different twist to say, um, just because you see me in the public eye looking one way, doesn't mean that this is how I am in my quote unquote real life. So it's a sort of a sort of defense rather than an explanation. Mm -hmm. But the argument at its core, I find to be fundamentally the same, which is that, you know, my I can perform as a character, as a celebrity, in a way that is, you may think that's who I quote unquote really am. But in fact, I'm not and I can have a, so to speak, real life that's distinct from that. Um, and Donald Trump made similar arguments about his behavior towards women during um, his campaign for president, looking back on his relationships. And so that, that's where my research enters this issue. But certainly there are other issues at stake, such as libel and defamation um, that are related with the uh, Johnny Depp case, as well as some other um, high profile cases that have been going on. Going back even a little bit further in history, for example, I know Fatty Arbuckle is one of the cases that comes up a lot. I guess maybe even one of the first big celebrity court cases. So uh, this was this was Susan's area of expertise for the book, uh, my co-author. But in, in the Fatty Arbuckle case, he was accused, I think, of this horrific crime. I believe it's like murdering his girlfriend. And a lot of the coverage centered on his appearance and his weight. And so we can see 
again, at this particular period in time, to go back to the previous discussion, uh, there was a sense in film in, in the early, you know, early days of cinema that one's character on screen was sort of intrinsically linked to who one truly was. So um, characters were often typecast um, by their appearance, especially um, growing out of silent film where the audience couldn't hear you. And so judgments were made based on your appearance. And um, the coverage of the case in the press largely, you know, was, was damning and um, often revolved around, you know, thinking about his weight and his appearance. And so the idea that we can kind of read someone's persona or, or know them based on how they look and how they appear in film on screen in their roles um, when it translates into their personal lives and translates into the courtroom. It's a, it's a theme that's played out for decades. And if we look at these, and there's a whole lot of them, we can't go into all of them, from OJ to Polanski, Michael Jackson, of course, Weinstein and Cosby. And what does this do to their careers after having these big cases? We've seen a theme emerge in terms of if we look at rich, powerful men, most generally in Hollywood, um, that between the Weinstein case, the Cosby case, as as revelations have come to light about Michael Jackson and and also as female stars who were famous in their early uh, young adulthood and or childhood have started to grow up and talk more about what they experienced as young women. I'm thinking about Britney Spears and Jessica Simpson, uh, Christina Aguilera, and even like Karen Elson, who's now come out and talked about what's been going on in the modeling industry. Mm, Janet Jackson. Janet Jackson. Absolutely. I think a greater awareness of the power dynamics and unhealthy sort of structural issues that seem to underpin some of this behavior so that we're perhaps not surprised. And the Depp case sort of starts to peel that back. I mean, I was shocked in reading, not shocked, I guess, shocked is, but I, I was a little bit admittedly surprised about the range and names of people that showed up in, yes. the, uh, in the courtroom. Everyone from Paul Bettany to Oleg Deripaska. So what is happening here? Yeah, and Elon Musk. Yeah, I want to get into this case because I think we can go back and look at several of your interesting theories through this case. So the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp, essentially he is suing his ex-wife for $50 million. In 2018, she wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about domestic violence. Like, I guess she didn't mention him by name, but he says that she falsely implied that she was physically and sexually abused by him. She is countersuing him for $100 million. He also sued in 2020. He lost a libel suit um, for the British tabloid The Sun, where they had called him a wife beater. So much of this trial has already been hashed in that one. I just want to start my first question because a lot of people are asking me that. Why does he want to do this again? I do not know. <laughs> it seems wild to think that he would drag not only her but himself through the public eye and the names you mentioned right i was reading the reports of the trial testimony and I, I had to do a double take to remind myself that this was not 
an assault allegation, but a but a libel case brought by Depp himself. I was befuddled by this, um, especially because of the things that he's saying on the stand about himself and uh, his alcohol use and his his past experiences. My read is that he's trying to charm he's trying to charm the public, maybe charm. Is it a jury trial? I yes. think he's trying to be quite charming. And while that might be compelling to some, he's still revealing far too much, in my opinion, about himself. That's quite unflattering. So it's confusing to, to me as to why he would do this. But one thing we have seen, and to bring back to the Marilyn Manson case, we can we can look at Marilyn Manson, we can look at um, Donald Trump, we can look at this case with Johnny Depp in cases where we've seen high profile, again, men under attack, that there is a way in which they can attack back or preemptively attack in an attempt to um, one, sway public opinion, and two, also um, potentially to intimidate their accusers. It's, it is sort of a counter attack. And that kind of move, I think, if you're Amber Heard, that there's that that's a lot of stress and a lot of pressure. So so I've read some theories on Twitter that this kind of litigation is almost another can be understood as another form of domestic violence in these cases, that it's a way of controlling some of the things that he's been accused of. If you have someone who's who's controlling in a relationship or uh, emotionally abusive, that it can be understood as a kind of form of abuse in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there seems to be an element of ego involved, narcissism that even though it's befuddling to us why he would do this, um, that that there's something that he he feels empowered by in this case because. It seems that there's no upside otherwise. So as you and I are talking, just to be clear, um, it's been about nine days of trial. We've heard his testimony as well as cross-examination. Several other witnesses, you know, talking about them both being violent and and testifying on behalf of either one of them, so to speak. But we have not heard Amber Heard's testimony or her cross. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. He says that he wants to get the, to, uh, to the truth for his children and that, that he has lost so many jobs. But the thing is that what's coming out, I mean, irregardless of if he wins this defamation, he already lost in England, the things that are coming up in terms of his drug use and fingers being cut off and fights and things, I mean, who, I have a hard time seeing how corporations like Disney and things would want to work with him anyway, irregardless of how this case falls out for him. Yes, it is, it is confusing. 
that he thinks that he will come out looking good from this. Although I will also add in terms of social media response that every time we have one of these high profile cases, you do see a strong contingent of fans who come out and robustly defend uh, these folks, no matter how serious the allegations, no matter what they admit about themselves, no matter how horrific um, the crimes that are, or, you know, the allegations that are out there, you'll have folks who are, you know, big fans of this actor or, you know, big fans of a musician's music coming out and saying like, oh, this is just all rubbish and this is just designed to attack him. And there will almost be this kind of strong cohort that goes to the other extreme of saying, like defending the person intensely. Um, so I agree that it's that's probably not going to be enough for, for an organization like Disney, mm -hmm. whose brand strategy is completely, you know, incompatible with the, some of the things that he's admitting public he says as opposed to the theory you had about um having a persona he sort of talked about that they're passionate and volatile but this was somehow love um that struck me it, re it reminded me very much of, of i don't know if you've seen big little lies but uh, the character that of celeste that nicole kidman plays in big little lies uh, you know she has these therapy sessions where she talks about um being in a, a physically and emotionally abusive relationship um and there's there's in the in the initial therapy sessions she talks about well, i hit him too and it's just a volatile um extreme expression of love you know that just it, it, that was the first thing that came to my mind when i read that he was um speaking about his relationship in that way of course a, a fictionalized account of of domestic violence but it, it reminded me of that very much do you think he has a chance to win this um i would not personally think that he has a good chance but i think we do know that the the legal kind of position towards celebrity in the united states is in fact different than in the uk there's there are different kinds of legal standards around privacy and around treatment of celebrity, especially, I'm especially thinking of paparazzi. But I do think that the UK case finding against him puts him at a disadvantage because um, although it's not, you know, necessarily going to be considered as precedent, it does uh, uh, show that a court has already found his claim to be unconvincing. So we shall see, but I, I would color myself surprised if he does come out um, uh, successfully in this case. Yeah, you were talking about celebrity before and fame, and I was just reading someone, I think it was The Wrap had an article today saying that basically this case shows that fame is over. <laughs> There's too many details, fa famous people, historically, there's a mystery about them. It's like TMI <laughs> in, in a way. How do you yeah. feel that this case and certain other cases similar to this that we've seen recently are looking at celebrity today in 2022? How are they redefining it, if at all? I, I've been thinking about this question of authenticity that I mentioned earlier. And it strikes me that um, one of the things that fans often find pleasurable about engaging with celebrity culture is this kind of gameplay of trying to figure out what is true and what is not true. So we have a lot of content 
in the celebrity culture across media platforms that's aimed at kind of speculation and editorialization about celebrities. And we take some degree of fun or, you know, some degree of pleasure in trying to suss out, you know, what is real, what is not. And one of the things that the courtroom does is that it provides a forum in which at least you know, under oath, one is supposed to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So it is supposed to be a forum in which we learn the quote unquote real truth. We get to see, in other words, the real person. And this is sort of like watching true crime. It's almost like a blending between true crime and celebrity, um, celebrity culture. Because one of the things that people love about true crime is trying to, again, play this game of figuring out, well, well, did the husband really kill the wife? Or there's this kind of weird sort of, you could consider it morbid fascination with trying to learn what really happened. And of course, you could never fully know in many cases what fully happened. And the, the celebrity trial, I think, really peels back a lot of the media veneer and lays bare uh, that interior space. Now, of course, there's also many layers of mediation through which we, the audience, learn about the trial, whether it be through social media or reporting about it or watching it on court TV. So it is still a mediated, highly mediated experience often for us. Um, and yet, once again, we're, we're kind of looking in, peeping in through that courtroom window to try to figure out well, what really happened? Who do we believe? Do we believe her or him? Um, you know, we are sort of forced to pick sides in many in many cases. And so there's, again, that sense of um, affinity. So if I identify with Amber or if I if I'm a fan of Johnny, where do where does my allegiance fall? Yeah. So I, I think it I think it prompts a reconsideration of uh, the question of authenticity and identification in celebrity culture. And, and I think, you know, celebrity as a phenomenon also reveals a lot about where we are as a culture. And so when we're seeing these trials about sexual violence and, and defamation, you know, we're also living in this moment where the question of truth and the question of privacy and who has the right to tell the story is really up for grabs. Just as I was logging in to chat with you, I saw that Elon Musk is seeming to be success, almost about to be successful in his purchase of Twitter. And again, I mean, this, it's, this is not to say that he's associated with the crime in any way, but again, this idea that like these powerful people want to control uh, the platform to control the narrative. And in some ways, I think that's not totally dissimilar from what Johnny Depp is trying to do by presenting his side of things in in this public forum. There seems to also be, what should I call it, a PR dichotomy today um, in terms of like celebrity and charity. You, in this case, for example, um, I remember Johnny Depp dressing up as Jack Sparrow to visit children's hospitals, but then here you're hearing about this couple living in luxury and um, destroying property for many millions. How does this look in the eyes of the fans, of the viewers, and, and for their PR people? 
Yeah, I, I think, again, another theme that emerges from celebrity that is quite revealing about American culture right now is the question of inequality and excessive wealth. Right. And when we see in this moment when lots of people are struggling financially and inflation is high, um, when we see people who have this exorbitant income and we see them behaving badly and using that income in nefarious, sometimes illegal, and sometimes deeply disturbing ways um, that one, there's a sense of like schadenfreude about that. Like, oh, you, you know, you deserve to be taken down because, and there's a kind of weird pleasure that we might see in that. But also there's, a, I think, a sense that, oh, look, see, when you have too much money, you know, it's, it's no good. It's not good for society to have this kind of extreme wealth. And that does bubble up in the Depp case because you see his personalized drug paraphernalia and you see, you know, the lifestyle that he's able to sustain. And we know uh, how much he's purported to have earned on some of these film franchises. And it's a lot of money. I was thinking, for example, of Will Smith and the much talked about the slap. One of the things that happened there was sort of the shock that Will Smith would do something like that. We did not see Will Smith punching his colleague on stage in front of the world. That shock is what sort of makes it so jarring for us. We have a longitudinal relationship with a celebrity like Will Smith. So he's not someone who just made one or two films. He's someone that many of us have grown up with, have known since he was, you know, a young 20-something on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And we have seen his career develop over time and we have grown to understand him as, as a person in a certain way. Now, that rests on many assumptions because, of course, most of us have never met him um, in real life. But we have a mediated understanding of who he is. And that's that's something that we develop if we follow his career and if we care about celebrity culture in any way. Right. So when a celebrity behaves in a way that we don't anticipate, when they lose face, so to speak, we can be shocked by that. We can reject that person. We can reject the behavior, but still consider ourselves fans of the person. Or we can totally, you know, say, that's it. This is going to seem like a weird analogy, but I think about when Miley Cyrus made her album. Now I'm forgetting what the name of the album was, but she had that whole makeover where she cut her hair really short and then she was dancing around on stage and with Robin Thicke. And that's not, that's not physical violence, right? She just like changed her appearance. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, because people thought they knew her as Hannah Montana, yeah, there was like a huge backlash against her because of the cognitive dissonance between who we thought she was and then how she was presenting herself. So even though that's different than the Will Smith thing, in a way, it, it, it's like we we can either stand by those stars or we can punish them for behaving in ways that we don't anticipate. And how easy or common is it for a star who has been either disgraced or had all their private things in a trial to come back? 
Yeah, it, it happens more often. And this is one of the things like we can think about when it comes to, we can argue <laughs> about whether or not Me Too has been quote unquote successful because a lot of times people, especially men, again, do come back from public quote unquote disgrace, so to speak. You know, I, I think about, for instance, now, now I'm losing my train of thought. Louis C.K., for example, Louis he, he just won a Grammy. Louis C.K., I mean, even with Marilyn Manson having all of those allegations against him, I think uh, it, it was eventually rece- uh, rescinded, but he was originally up for a Grammy or included in a Grammy. I'm thinking about Kanye West. Mel Gibson. Know, Mel Gibson, right. They're just able, in many cases, to make their way back into the public sphere. I do think we see this less often with women, but when women are disgraced, like I think about Paula Dean, rightfully so, but she is not coming back, right? Like I think when women are found to have said and done things that are uh, offensive and problematic, that I think it's a little bit harder um, for yeah, them to come back. Yeah, I was thinking Kathy Griffin, remember, who, when she yeah. held up that severed head of Donald Trump. She's still, I've he- been hearing interviews of her, she seems like having a very hard time coming back to where she was before. Juliana Rancic mm-hmm. on um, Fashion Police, um, shortly after Joan Rivers had passed away, had made some problematic comments about um, Zendaya and her appearance, right, and then racist. went on to see, yeah, racist comments, and saw her career just, you know, tank. But we see these men, like, they sort of make their way back. They're not punished as harshly. Other than being men, do you have a, do you see a theory as to how or why? Why does the public afford them the ability to come back? Yes, we we may enjoy their work. We may have fond memories of their music or their movies, but this is that whole question of cancel culture that this opens up. Like, should people be allowed to have the privilege of having this? Not that, not that everyone doesn't have the right to speak their mind, but, but I think that's different than having a privileged platform in the public sphere. Um, And a lot of that has to do with how the audience responds. Now we all love a comeback. That's a classic feature of celebrity culture. We, We love a comeback. And so um, particularly when people do have a genuine apology or a sense of remorse, I think the public will welcome folks back. Do you have an example? I mean, I know I'm just catching you off guard, but someone who has had a genuine apology that has been able to come back? (laughs) Well, I think I thought Will Smith's apology was actually quite um, thoughtfully worded, but we yet to be seen what's Mm -hmm. going to happen with his circumstance. not that Brittany had to apologize or had anything to to necessarily apologize for, but I think Brittany, Brittany Spears's um, case of her comeback into the public eye, um, she's actually had multiple comebacks to my mind, mm. um, has been successful. But I'm trying to think of like someone who apologized for something and then came back. Would you say Ellen has come back? Because she was accused of bullying and having a very bad work culture at the yeah. Ellen DeGeneres show. And yeah. she did apologize, and but I don't know how people see her now. I mean, she's still yeah, doing the show. I, she's still doing the show. I did think that that hurt her image because to go back to the previous point, her toxic 
workplace culture accusations were so not aligned with how she presented herself another on that case show. Of that. yeah yeah um the, the other part of this that's a little bit tricky is that sometimes unfortunately in in our culture we have the idea that an apology equals weakness a sign of weakness or an admission of guilt and so i think that from a public relations standpoint issuing a formal apology is not necessarily a panacea. It's, I think it really depends on the star right. and how that apology plays out. Now, ending up here with a Johnny Depp, I mean, he would say that he's already lost work, that he lost both, I guess, Fantastic Beasts and that Disney's not going to hire him again, Lisa. But uh, what do you think? Either way, do you see him rehabilitating, coming, going back to being the bad boy Johnny Depp, but not that bad boy that we're seeing here? Or, or is this sort of the last straw for him? Yeah, you know, it is interesting because his image is one that is founded on this kind of rakish bad boyness. And so, you know, for him to admit and joke around about some of his behavior, it's not necessarily incompatible with his public image. And yet, as you point out, he has in the past been associated with franchises that are more family oriented. I think it will depend on how the trial shakes out. I think it will depend largely on um, what are what are the stories that emerge from this? What does Amber testify? Um, and uh, of course, what is the ultimate verdict? And I will say, I don't see this necessarily being the end of his career, but I could see that he could be in less uh, less of those prominent franchises, at least for a period of time, than he has been in the past because of some of the things that he's now admitted publicly and that have come to light. If you were um, his PR people, do you, would you think that this was a good idea to... Uh... <laughs> I don't, I don't think they, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't get paid their salary to make that decision, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I think they have a challenge on their hands. However, the trial shakes out to figure out what his next PR direction will be. Professor McDonald, thank you so much. This was so interesting and I'm really looking forward to reading your new project. Thank you, Christina. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.